Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Investment Podcast. This week, exceptionally, we're not going to be talking about Investment Trust directly, but as a special, I'm going to be talking to the author and former wealth manager, David Locke. The reason for doing so is partly because I've known David for a number of years professionally, but also because his first book that he wrote called No More Champagne, a book about Winston Churchill and the way that he managed or mismanaged his finances, is a splendid read and has lots of interesting detail about how this great man managed his personal life and has some interesting lessons that one could say about how to deal with money. And David, before he retired, was the founder of a wealth management firm called Hartwood Investment Management, which he ran very successfully before it was sold to Handelsbank. So, David, I'd like to welcome you to this special edition of the podcast. Thank you. Uh, let me just kick off by asking you how it was that you came to write this spending book, No More Champagne, about Winston Churchill and his money. Well, I, I'd been a historian at university, and uh, I, I loved my history, but then I went off to earn my living doing more normal things, and um, I kept reading history, and as I got sucked into my career in the financial markets, I guess I kept reading uh, biographies of Churchill, which come out at a fair pace, and I'd been about 14 or 15 when he died, and I remember a history teacher saying to me, don't believe all this stuff that's written about Churchill. He was just an old Victorian windbag. And I repeated that in front of my grandmother, who was absolutely mortified. And she started giving me the various Churchill official biography volumes as they came out. And as I read about him, because he's a fascinating character to read about, I realized that the money side was never properly explained. There were these occasional shards of information when some money problem broke through. But then Martin Gilbert, the official biographer, who's a wonderful historian, but he clearly never understood about money. Uh, and I don't think anybody else who wrote about Churchill did. So we were just left with these little sort of shreds of information that, that as I got more and more professionally involved in wealth management, I realized it just didn't make sense, didn't hang together. So I just thought there's something there. And I knew from advising families that if you're going to be any good as a wealth manager, you've really got to get them to talk about themselves and to to explain you know, what their values are, what their priorities are, what they want money to do for them. And so I thought if I could get at what actually happened to Churchill and his money, I could reverse the process and it would tell me something about Churchill as a person and try to explain some of these enormous contradictions that otherwise appear in his personality. And so um, off I went to the Churchill archives to see whether there was enough material there. And I thought, I'll just take one year. I'll take 1921, as it happened because quite a lot went on in 1921 for him. And uh, I was astonished at what was there in the archives. All his bank accounts, all his tax papers, all his correspondence with his solicitor, all his investment papers. I mean, just everything was there, but untouched, basically. And the director of the archives said to me, nobody's ever looked at the bank accounts. Nobody's ever looked at this stuff. 
And in a way, if you look at somebody's bank accounts, it will actually tell you a lot about the way that they lead their lives and therefore the kind of personalities they are in many cases. Yes, I mean, it, <laughs> some people might think it's a pretty odd process, but actually bank accounts don't lie, you know. And w- once you can sort of decode it, you learn what the names are and what the money's going out to or, or coming in from. They tell you a lot. Well, let's talk then about Churchill and, and because obviously... Widely regarded as a great man, a great wartime leader, but his political career and his personal life were both fairly, um, how do I put it, uh, they didn't go in a straight line, let's put it that way. (laughs) He had a series of disasters as well as triumphs and uh, involved in some things that went wrong, both uh, in politics and elsewhere. And yet, as we know, he was was a Churchill, he was was born at Blending Palace. So how come that he... um, I mean, the story of his life is that he was always struggling with money issues. There were always issues that he had to deal with. He was always short of money, or at least until the very end of his life. So why was that? Why, having been born into what you would think would be a privileged background, why did he end up in a position where he was always short Mm -hmm. of money? It's a good question, and there are one or two reasons why. I mean, first of all, dukes, the aristocracy, were starting to fall on pretty hard times by the time he was born in the 1870s. Most of their income was based on the land. And about that time, we were starting to get shipments of grain from North America, which caused a big agricultural depression. Prices of land went down because what the land produced wasn't worth as much as it had been. So that was one of the big factors that was affecting ducal estates like like the Churchills or the, the Duke of Marlborough. The other thing was that people were starting to live much longer. Families were getting bigger. More of the children survived. And for some of these families, that meant that you, know, you had to pay the old dowager duchess for long, her pension for longer and um, more siblings survived and the daughters had to have diaries. And so that was another challenge. And the Marlboroughs had had some very dissolute dukes. By the time Churchill was born, they were on to Duke number seven. And Duke number four had been a particular wastrel. Wastrel, yes. And they'd never anyway been in the front rank of ducal fortunes, or or at least in land holdings. At their peak, I think they were about 100,000 acres, compared to, say, Northumberland, 250,000 acres. They were were slightly Johnny-come-latelys in the ducal stakes. What they did have were wonderful non-income producing assets, like old masters' paintings or rare books, which had been presented to the first duke, or gems. And they were busy selling them off as Churchill was born to try to retrieve the overall Blenheim fortunes. They were selling them basically to the Rothschilds, the Rothschilds were the big buyers of Marlborough land around Blenheim and their jewellery and all sorts of stuff. And then, you know, Winston Churchill's father was the second son, not the first son. That um, makes a big difference. Yeah. That made a difference. <laughs> so his parents were always in debt. I mean, the problem with these aristocrats at that moment of time was they were still felt they were entitled to live a grand life, but they didn't have the means to do so. So they always bought their clothes in the most expensive places. They still had lots of horses and vets bills, and they had a country establishment and a town establishment, and they had domestic servants coming out of everywhere. So his parents lived in debt almost from the day they were married. And Churchill was brought up in a world where they paid their bills as late as they could, and that means several years later. And they were borrowing from unofficial money lenders at 
enormous rates of interest. I so think. they were they were kind of asset rich, but they were well. They were parents weren't even that much asset rich. I mean, the the senior branch was still relatively asset rich, but his parents weren't even asset rich. They were in debt all their lives. Right. I mean, the sort of standard solution was to go off and marry an American heiress. But uh, in the case of Churchill's mother, she wasn't actually an heiress, so she didn't uh, come with a huge dowry. She was American. But she well, she was American. I mean, she did have a dowry. I mean, she was the first of three sisters to get married. And at the time she got married, her father had a bit of money, and he did settle on her in what should have been a worthwhile amount, but she had enormously extravagant tastes. Yeah. Her second husband... Uh, who was half her age, um, claimed that she spent, well, today's equivalent of half a million pounds a year on dresses, you know, all from worth in Paris. She had enormous, she, she never understood the value of money, he said. So there wasn't much of a parental example. Winston's father died when he was only 20, so he had to get an allowance from his mother. I found that when he was a young bachelor in London, he spent about £1,500 a year in the money of the day, which would today be over £150,000 a year. But what I also found was that the typical well-to-do bachelor, you know, uh, active in the top social life in London at the time, spent about 100000 a year. So Winston was spending about 50% more than was typical of his sort of class. Without having sufficient resources yeah. to do that. So that's what started this whole cycle of what comes through in the book is, as you say, not paying bills. He had yeah. tailors who accommodated him for years and, right. uh, yeah. and spending a lot on horses and polo. Yeah. And, of course, he was also trying to make his way in the army as well at some point where he had to yes. have horses and all that kind of stuff. Had to buy a commission, I imagine, did he? Is that how it still worked? Mm, no, he didn't have to buy a commission. But, it, I mean, he was only paid £120 a year as a young army soldier, right. which against £1,500 spending doesn't go very far. His mother said that she would give him an allowance of £500 a year but didn't always pay it. But he discovered that he could write, and uh, his mother helped him get the writing contracts. And he started writing newspaper articles as a sort of embedded war correspondent, and then turned those into books. And then I suppose his big break in financial terms came when he was captured in the Boer War, while he was a correspondent, and then famously escaped. And that led to a big demand, not just for writing, but for lecture tours. And he earned a huge amount of lecturing, both in this country and the States. And, you know, he emerged at the age of 25. As he became an MP for the first time, age of 25, he had saving, he had saved £10,000, which is today's equivalent of a million pounds, which he'd made entirely of his own. No more money in there, nothing inherited. He'd made a million and then he went through it in the next 10 years. So that MP. seems to be a repeating pattern. Every time he had came yeah. in as a money, he managed to get through it. Uh, yeah, well, you know, politics was an expensive profession to try to break into, really. The MPs weren't paid then. He, he didn't become a minister for another five years. And uh, there was a certain lifestyle to keep up. He bought the most expensive clothes. His underwear was silk. His hats were lined with silk. He went and saw lots of doctors, actually, because he was already a bit of a hypochondriac. And, and that was a guinea visit, which is 150 quid a time. And he was seeing doctors 50 times a year. Wow. Dentists were enormous yeah. amount of time. You know, there was just there was a, a enormous amount of expenditure. When the First World War broke out, he owed his wine merchant the equivalent of £50,000. And yet they were always happy to extend credit. All these people who supplied yes. him were always happy to extend credit, as they had done to, yeah. which was based on what? You know, I think it was this a social thing. They were rather proud to have 
members of the aristocracy or the political classes as their as customers, the clients. Uh, you know, you can sort of imagine Winston Churchill going out of the door and the wine merchant saying to the next guy who comes in, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, you know, who do you think my... Just be serving, yeah. Is? I mean, it still goes on with the royal warrant system in a different, <laughs> in a different way. Okay, so then after the First World War, suddenly around 1920, you mentioned 1921 being the year you looked at, but about mm-hmm. 1920, around that time, things actually suddenly got rather good for him, did he not? I mean, in the sense that uh, he did inherit some money eventually, including some money from a rather obscure cousin of some sort. Yes, well, yeah, it was 1921. In fact, in 1920, he'd had his first rescue because um, 1920 wasn't a good year. That was a bad year. That was a bad year because he was back on a minister's salary, a cabinet minister's salary. But um, 1921, he had this great stroke. I mean, it was a very mixed year because he lost um, his brother-in-law, he lost his mother, and then he lost a young daughter, Marigold, at the age of about three. But the year had started with this huge stroke of... Um, I mean, it was an extraordinary story, really, where there was a train crash down in Wales, and on it was an Irish cousin of his, uh, one of three brothers, I think it was. This was the third brother to die in that family without any children, and there was the end of the male line in that family, uh, the Londonderrys. And uh, the uh, Marchioness of Londonderry had been uh, married a, a Churchill, and she was the uh, well, it was the sixth or seventh duke's wife. Anyway, the the money came across the the Londonderry line had finished and it jumped across the family to the Churchills. It would have gone to Lord Randolph, Winston Churchill's father, had he still been alive, but he had died early, and so it came into Winston's hot sticky hands. And it was even after Irish death taxes, it was worth about four million pounds. Then his mother died in the same year, and Lord Randolph's will settlement, another story, but did have some money in it. And so he got the equivalent, it came to him through inheritance that year in 1921, of about £5 million. And at the time, he had debts to his banks of about half that, two or three million pounds. And, you know, if I was giving him boring advice, he would never retain me as an advisor, but uh, because <laughs> I would have been too boring for him. I would have said, pay down that debt. <laughs> and you've got to net a million in the bank and you can sort of collect the income from that and supplement your lifestyle. But he wasn't having any of that. He consolidated the debt, but he didn't pay down any of it. And he sort of blew up his balance sheet on the other side. A, he bought a Rolls Royce. Um, B, the following year, he bought a country house called Chartwell and then spent about four times what he planned to spend on converting it. Uh, He started gambling uh, to a much greater extent than he ever had and he was a consistent loser and he started investing on the stock exchange much more actively. So that was a sort of key turning point for him financially. He could have just, as you said, he could have gone to you as his he wealth manager and said, risks. "And you could have." <laughs> History would have been very different, I dare say, because only three years later, this man who's extravagantly spending and gambling and stuff it becomes Chancellor of the Exchequer. I mean, it's kind of quite a, yes. an interesting yeah. <laughs> in 1925. Yes. Yeah. And um, strange uh, appointment. A strange appointment, <laughs> indeed. And then puts us on the gold standard, as I recall, which is kind of imposing yes. financial rigor on the country, but he wasn't imposing on himself, I guess. Yeah. And there's, I think there's an amusing story. When, when he was appointed, he 
You know, he wrote very proper. He said to his bankers, I must sell all my securities uh, because I'm going to have a conflict of interest and I'll just keep cash. And you'll find when you've sold them all and paid down my loans, you'll find that there should be quite a bit left over. So they, they sold all his securities and there was nothing left at all. In fact, worse than that, he owed today's equivalent of about £400,000 in tax because as an author, you get taxed gradually and yes. you know, he'd had the money in and he'd spent it, but there was still tax to pay. And it amounted to about 400000 and he had nothing to pay it with. As Chancellor of the Exchequer. As Chancellor of the Exchequer. <laughs> so, you know, not, not being very reticent character, he goes along to the then chairman of the Inland Revenue and says, Chairman, we have a problem. <laughs> you know, in almost those words. And says that I've got this problem, I can't pay, you know, what do you suggest? And the chairman, who's about 37 years old, a high flyer, in, in those days the chairman of the Inland Revenue was a young civil servant going a long way, which indeed this man did, Richard Hopkins. And, and he said, Chancellor, I'll put my top people onto it and I'll come back to you. He, he very wisely kept a record of these conversations in his own hand. And he put them into a pack, which a little package, which I found in the National Archives. He gave them to his private sector and said, I think you better keep these just in case. <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, his experts worked away at it. And um, they came back about a week later and he said again in a handwritten note, he said, uh, Chancellor, I think we have, oh, what was the word he used, uh, something like, you know, an opportunity. And Churchill gave it to his tax person at Lloyd's Bank and said, um, what do you think? And the guy says, basically, well, he may call it an opportunity. I call it a loophole. <laughs> they found this rather technical thing, which allowed him to retire as an author on the day he became Chancellor of the Exchequer, which meant that anything he was still going to be paid was free of tax. And I mean, effectively, it halved the bill. It halved right. his tax bill, saved him a couple of hundred thousand pounds. And then he, so he was Chancellor of the Exchequer doing, but he found that the Chancellor's salary was not enough to keep him in the style to which he was accustomed. And so he went and got the Prime Minister's permission to, while, while Chancellor, to, to write the third volume of his History of the First World War, because he could earn a bit of extra that way. And then he got the Prime Minister's permission and suddenly realised, oh my goodness, I've retired as an author. So, so he had to summon the Chairman of the Inland Revenue back and say, well, you remember you helped me retire as an author about a year ago. <laughs> I need to restart writing, but I can't afford to crystallise that textbook you saved me. Have you got any right ideas? <laughs> further right ideas. Yeah, and the guy said, you know, I'll go away, I'll think about it. I'll get my experts onto it. And he comes back with a scheme and, and, and hey, presto, he's able to carry on writing. So he, <laughs> he managed to get through that. I mean, and of course, presumably none of this was known outside those very... No, I mean, that was not known until I researched this book, right. that, that particular little story. I think he built on that experience because in World War II, he browbeats the Inland Revenue into giving him very special tax treatment. Right. Well, we'll come on to that, but I think we've set a sort of pattern here anyway. Yeah. So in some ways, though, I mean, we know he had a very strong personality and a very domineering personality in some ways. Uh, but he must have thought, as with his inheritance, that, well, you know, something will always turn up. In other words, mm. there's always a way out of any, any difficulty. Mm. You know, I'll always survive. Presumably that was his mentality. I think so, yeah. I, and uh, Clementine, his wife, said, you know, what you've got to realise about him is he can bend anybody to his will. And whenever he needs rescuing, he finds somebody to rescue him. 
I found seven occasions on which he was bailed out by somebody or other. Right. Sometimes quite major. But he finds good rescuers. You know, they don't, on the whole, exact a terrible price. And uh, he could bend publishers to his will. He, he was right. I mean, in the end, you know, although he gave his bank, he gave them a huge amount of trouble. He never met his dates for repaying loans or this and that. But, but you know, at the end of the day, they never lost a penny in lending to him. He came good in the end. He did. Yeah. Might have taken quite a while. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, to, to give credit, I mean, I really think Lloyd's Bank should use him as a case study in training their bankers because the guy who they put on to him for most of his time with them had this enormous belief in him. He was convinced he would never lose a penny on lending to him. And he, and he was able to communicate that up the line. Uh, his name was Bernau, B-E-R-N-A-U. And I think he deserves a lot of credit for, for, as a relationship manager. Well, it's a famous story about, um, well, I don't remember, that story's been true of many people. I can't remember who originally said it, but about going to a bank manager and saying, you know, uh, I owe you a, a million and, uh, you know, uh, that is my problem, but uh, it's also your problem <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> because you lent it to me. But I mean, having yeah. said that, I mean, here's Churchill who's leading this rather you know, lifestyle, and uh, I dare say he would be given a bit of a harder time today if he tried to spend this, if he was smoking so many cigars a day and overweight and all the rest of it. He wouldn't get past the health police, would he? Um, well, but or maybe I, you think he would. You know, he might, find, he might have found a way. I mean, he was such fun to research because there was never a, a dull day. I mean, half the time you think he's a rogue, but, but he's also, I think he has some consistent principles throughout his life but there's an unbelievable moment or a very humorous moment of each day of research really something will come up mm. and so let's just then talk about what happens after the 1920 after he's a chance to check he gets caught up in the in the wall street crash in 1929 so how did that come yes. out and what was and what this was isn't in the official biography at all this is entirely missing this whole episode he could see that they were going to lose the election the conservatives because by then he was a conservative again in 1929. And so well before the election, he sort of lays his plans for life after the election. And he lines up a very good contract to write a book about his ancestor, John, the first Duke of Marlborough. But he thinks he'll take a bit of a break before he starts work and go over to... It's really his literary agent who says, you must go to the States. His literary agent by then was a man called Curtis Brown, an American. And he said, you keep going off to France, to the Riviera, but you're never going to develop a readership down there. What you should be doing is going to the States. That's where the money is. That's where the future is. Go and find out about it. Make some contacts. And Churchill thinks about it. He thinks that's good advice. And so he lines up a whole host of people to look after him when he's out there. He's not going to pay for any of this himself. And he goes across Canada, courtesy of Canadian Pacific, and then he comes back, he goes down the west coast of America and comes back across courtesy of people like um, William Randolph Hearst and uh, Bernie Baruch and um, Charles Schwab in, in Chicago. They all look after him really well. And while he's going out across Canada, it's the last, what well, we now know, it was the last stages of, of a raging bull market. And he gets some fees for speaking and um, he invests them. He gets in, he dabbles in a couple of oil mines. He goes across the prairies. And then he meets some broker in Winnipeg who 
puts him into another couple of stocks and then he meets a stockbroker down in San Francisco who puts him into more. And he doesn't realise that they're doing it on margin. And um, he writes back to Clementine and says, you won't believe the good fortune that's come our way. We're making so much money because this, you know, prices were roaring up. And what happened in those days was that they put the prices in San Francisco were on blackboards and the hotel windows. And every half an hour, they came and wiped out the old prices and put up the new ones. And then he went on Randolph Hearst's um, yacht off the West Coast. And he was absolutely entranced by the fact that he could deal from the yacht on the phone. <laughs> and he had some stocks that he held in London and San Francisco. And then when he got to New York, he owned them there too. And, and really, he sort of completely lost track of what he'd got. His turnover while he was staying in New York as a guest at Bernie Baruch, who was a big Wall Street operator, and gave him a desk and introduced him to his brokers. He had multi-million dollar turnover each week in today's money. And he sort of lost track of where he was. And then he was still in New York when on Thursday late in October, the market cracked. And for 24 hours, the bankers sort of held it together and then it cracked again on Friday. He was due to go home that weekend. He started totting things up and couldn't quite work it out. So he, he got hold of the broker in San Francisco uh, with E.F. Hutton and said, you know, where do you think things stand? And the guy said, well, it's not looking very good. <laughs> <laughs> and he was due to leave New York on the Monday night and the markets fell another 10% or so on the Monday. And he went to a farewell party at Bernie Baruch's apartment and the toast was, you know, friends and former millionaires. <laughs> and on the, on the ship on the Tuesday, the ticker tape was still running and it fell another 12%. I mean, the market had fallen 40% in four trading days. And he was down today's equivalent of a million pounds, a million pounds which he didn't have. I, I think this has a big impact on his politics in the 30s because he has to write like crazy. He has to write books and articles. And so he hasn't really got time for frontline politics in the 30s. He hasn't got time to go and schmooze in the House of Commons smoking room and that sort of thing. You know? So these are the wilderness years, or whatever, the wilderness the wilderness. years but they weren't necessarily... He was too busy trying to get his money back. In. Yeah, and, and, and one of the ways in which he did it was to try to trade his way out of it on the stock exchange. He went back to the States in 1930 for a lecture tour and, and was hit in an accident on the streets in New York. And while he's lying in his hospital bed, he's visited by a guy from Citibank because he's got some dollar fees coming in from the speaking things. And this guy starts to teach him about um, currency options and futures, <laughs> which Chatra thinks fantastic. I mean, the guy teaches him in the, about it for the purpose of hedging the future yes. dollar receivables. But Churchill soon works out, you don't need any capital to play in quite large numbers. And within months, he's, he's dealing in three currencies simultaneously, currency options, and mainly forwards at that stage. But um, yeah, the thread that runs between his private and public life is really risk-taking on a spectacular scale. Yeah. And so that is a constant, as you say, so you can't really understand him as the public figure without actually realising that all this is going on in the background. Yeah. And his style of investing as such, quite apart from the sort of trading in um, currency uh, forwards, well, he was basically what we would call today almost a day trader. Yeah. He didn't really have the capital, you see, to sustain his positions. 
So he was in and out, in and out. I mean, in the UK, you could do it within the stock exchange account. Yeah. In the States, he used margin and he could never sustain his positions for long. He used Bernie Baruch for information, including definitely insider information as much as he could, which wasn't a crime then, of course. But his investing results were dismal, absolutely dismal. He did slightly better on currencies than um, stocks. Right, but even so, that's, that's relative. But do you actually think this is a personality, I was going to say personality disorder, but I mean, is it, is, is he had the kind of personality traits that lends itself to this kind of high-risk speculative activity? Yeah, I think he was slightly addicted to it. He was addicted to risk in a way. You know, you look at his gambling in the 1930s, he had net debts of, you know, in today's money, several million, and they were climbing. He was trying to trade his way out of it, but it never worked. And they were climbing so that by the late 30s, it was sort of net three or four million um, debt. You know, he, he'd borrowed from everywhere he could, his family trusts, every, he borrowed everywhere. And yet, although with this worsening debt position, he could not stop himself going down to the south of France each year. And gambling in, a lot in more, the casino, yeah. and you know, on average, you can I can see it in his bank accounts. He, on average, he he dropped fifty or sixty thousand pounds a year in today's yeah. money. So he would have loved Bitcoin in that case. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anything yeah. new and exciting which you could do yeah. for yeah. You know, I think he had. Um, I mean, there are various theories about the black dog. Or I think the black dog is overcooked. I don't think he was a full scale at all. He's, his output is too big. His decisiveness is too great for that. He may have been what psychiatrists call very slightly cyclothymic, which is a very mild form of bipolar. But you have periods when you're up and you're very charismatic and energetic and wonderful conversationalist, etc. in those periods of up. And then you have the periods of down. And if you're a politician, the great thing is to control those periods of down. And he did learn. He suffered a Probably in the first decade of the 1900s, when he was a very young MP before he married. He always said Clementine helped him. It almost went when she came into my life. But I think he also painting helped him when he learned to paint after Gallipoli problems. And in the 1930s, he kept himself this sort of manically busy, really, painting, bricklaying, politicking, so far as he could. But there were definitely these periods of almost manic behaviour, gambling or investing, trading. And so that, that brings us on to, to the, you know, 1940, when he takes over as Prime Minister, having been in the wilderness and having, mm. you know, criticised the lack of rearmament and so on, he is suddenly mm. in, introduced into government. But at that stage, he's, he still mm. had his money problems, right? I mean, he yes. took it over this time, a great national crisis, but he yeah. still had money problems. Yeah. Well, he's had a major bailout in 1938, you know, the day that Hitler went into Austria, the Anschluss. He'd had, that was his biggest bailout of all, because he was about to be bankrupt. And he said to Brendan Bracken, who was his fixer, really, he said, Brendan here are the papers, can you help me? And Brendan Bracken knew the person to go to, who was his co-owner of The Economist magazine, Austrian immigrant, uh, who had given advice to various central banks, India and South Africa, a man called um, Strakosch, Henry Strakosch. And Strakosch was also chairman of international, of a South African mining company, which supplied the sort of metals that were used in the armaments industries to both Germany and Britain. And he had seen what was happening to the, their sales to Germany. 
which were soaring compared to almost flatline sales to Britain. And he had been one of the people feeding information to Churchill, private information to Churchill, which had allowed him to become a very effective applicant yes. of rearmament. And Strakosh thought it was important Churchill was kept in the game because, you know, if you were bankrupt, you had to resign as an MP. And he took over all Churchill's American stocks in 1938 at Churchill's cost because they were down, they were worth about a third of what they cost him. And um, that sort of bailed out the, the 1938 problem kept him just about, you know, solvent. But then what I found was that in June 1940, as you say, you know, within days of taking over as Prime Minister in in May, Churchill realised he would not be able to pay his bills due at the end of June, which was, you know, tax bills, um, insurance stuff, and bank interest. Bank, he wasn't going to be able to meet his bank interest because he still owed the bank today. It's equivalent to a million plus. And again, he handed the papers over to Brendan Bracken and said, Brendan, can you help? This is while he's trying to keep France in the game. <laughs> and um, Brendan Bracken goes off to Henry Strakosch and says, Winston's in trouble. Again, <laughs> can you help? And uh, he, he just wrote out a cheque for £5,000, which is the equivalent now, I suppose, of about a quarter of a million and interestingly, he wrote it out to Brendan Bracken, who then endorsed it over to Churchill, as the bank account tells you. Again, just think how that would have played if yeah. that kind of thing had gone on today. Extraordinary. And then, so while he was, as you say, wrestling with these great, huge mm. national emergency, he was still having money worries. Mm. But there is a sort of happy ending in a way, because by the time the war ends, he's actually... In the black, yes, not because he's been doing sort of, <laughs> taking everyone's position yeah. per se, but uh, how did that come about? Well, that's a very good question because, you know, he went into the war in 1939 with about a million of debt in today's money, and he finishes with five or six million in his bank account and a new house in London. And how do you achieve that when tax rates are 19 and sixpence in the pound, which is the equivalent of 95%? Penal wartime rates, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So the answer is, as far as the money coming in is concerned, is basically film rights to his earlier books. It's America. When the tide turns, the Americans realise that there's a huge story around Churchill as the man who stood alone and defied yes. Hitler. And the studios start to look at their post-war <laughs> plans yeah. and they realise that Churchill is going to be a huge story. And through people who knew Churchill on this side of the water and were involved in the film industry, they start to bid against each other for film rights to his earlier books. I mean, you know, how are you going to make films, you may well ask. of Well, one, one of the things they bid for was his autobiographical volume, My Early Life. So that's fair enough. And that got made about 20 years later into Young Winston. Young Winston, that was yeah. the film Young Winston, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but they bought things like The River War and they bought... Um, even the history of the English-speaking peoples, which hadn't been published but had been written. <laughs> right. um, I mean, some of them you know, were paying sort of £2 million a throw for these. But then if that had been taxed at 19 and sixpence in a pound, you know, it would have mostly gone. 
So Churchill remembered the, from the First World War that he'd had this strategy <laughs> of retiring. At the, so he deemed himself to have retired on the uh, day of the outbreak of war, even though he'd carried on writing history of the English-speaking peoples well, you know, late at night at the Admiralty while he was First Lord there. And then the Inland Revenue claimed that it should be counted as income because he kept getting weekly instalments. He was paid weekly for his pre-war articles that they wanted to rerun and that sort of thing. But his advisor said, I think we could challenge the Inland Revenue. You know. And when the things were going worse with the war around the time of the fall of Singapore, Churchill had to make a decision, basically. His advisors wheeled in this new tax specialist who said, I, you know, I think you could win. And he said, well, what happens if I lose? Does it become public if I take on the inland revenue? And he said, well, not in the first instance when you're in front of the general commissioners, that's kept private. If, however, you lose, if you win there and the inland revenue decides to challenge you in front of the special commissioners, then it will go public, which obviously Churchill wanted to avoid. But... Such were the sums, he decided to give it a go. You know, this is the old risk-taking gene again, because what the tax specialist pointed out to him was that the general commissioners are all worthy men like solicitors or accountants or, you know, they're laymen, and they'll be on your side. So he says, we'll give it a go. And duly, he won his case that all his income since he'd been appointed, all his ancillary income should be exempt from tax. Uh, including the film income. And the senior inland revenue guys are incensed. They say, this is just nonsense. This is, you know, he's driving coach and horse through our law here. And they form up to the chairman of the inland revenue, who is then a man called Sir Cornelius Grigg. And they say, you know, we've got to appeal. And, and he says, give me 24 hours to think about it. And he comes back the next day. And he issues, I think, the best one-word memo I've ever seen in the archives. It just says, acquiesce. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, he realised the state can't take on its prime minister at the worst point of the war. At the it's worst just, point of the war. You know. <laughs> and so after that, the Inland Revenue never really laid a finger on Churchill for most of the rest of his life. They just, you know, they let everything go through as capital items. And that was the key. Capital was untaxed, zero percent. Income may have been 95%, but capital. So all his film rights, all the reprints of his old articles, he entered as right. capital items. So the rules were, should we say, kind of helpfully yeah. massaged in his direction, shall we yeah. say. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's really right. how it all yeah. ended up. Yeah. And after the war, obviously, by then he was in his 70s. Did he go back to his old spendthrift ways or was it by well, then slowing lived- down a bit? No, I mean, he, he still lived quite expensively because he had a lot of staff. Uh, and Clementine had always warned him that this would be the problem. You know, Chartwell was an expensive place to run, lots of gardeners. Churchill had six secretaries at all times because they worked in teams of two. Three shifts. One would be taking the dictation, one would be typing up what he just dictated. You know, it was a literary f- factory. He, he had re- researchers there working up post-war he wrote the second world war he did again there there was a special tax scheme for that yes (laughs) um and then they eventually renegotiated the terms of history of the english-speaking peoples and that was released and again they had a tax wheeze for that he retired again third time at the optimum moment for that so although he lived very expensively he brought in a lot of money post Second World War. He he was a celebrity, you know, of enormous 
proportions and uh, he ended up providing very well for his children and, and his grandchildren and through this special trust they'd set up to shelter the um, the income from the history of the Second World War. Yeah. So, as you say, in that sense, the the bank manager was right to trust him. But um, if we just look back at the whole story, then, as someone who used to, you know, professionally manage other people's money, what would you make of uh, Churchill as a clown? Would you trust him? Of course, I mean, he did. I remember from the very early days, he was complaining about how much money the lawyers were charging him and so on. Yeah, he wasn't very good at taking advice. Do you know, the only person whose advice really got through to him was the tax advisor. Right. Otherwise, he liked to run his own show. And I think, you know, that is typical of people who are sort of disruptor-type leaders. And um, Churchill is not alone amongst our prime ministers in this sort of behaviour. Indeed. <laughs> and, and I'm not necessarily thinking of today's occupant, although I could well be. But I'm, I'm thinking further back. You know, Disraeli, you Lord George. Disraeli, Lord George, uh, William Pitt the Elder, William yeah. Pitt the Younger. They both went through fantastic amounts of money. And had to own their, both their cases. Parliament sort of paid off their debts after their death. Disraeli is enormously... I could write just as colourful a book, I think, about Disraeli's finances <laughs> as Churchill, if not more so. Yes. If not more so. And I think, you know, these people who are disruptor leaders. But one of the reasons they get where they did, they often had some sort of... You know, they had big problems in their childhood, but they survived them. And... They emerge from that experience very confident of their own judgment and instinct. They don't really like listening to other people's advice. They exist in their own world and they're quite self-absorbed, as Churchill was. They don't take advice and they're not really sensitive to failure. They don't realise when they fail, they just pick themselves up and do it again because they're not good at picking up other people, what other people think about them. They're not afraid of failure. And so what we think, they take enormous risks. They don't really see it that way. And I'm convinced that this is, there's a very interesting American psychiatrist who's also a historian who who studied the lives of disruptive political and military leaders. And he concludes that they are, you know, by his normal diagnostic standards, almost all mentally, well, either ill or abnormal, certainly abnormal. And this is the sort of trait that he zeroes in on that you often find in disruptive leaders. They are great risk takers. They're very attractive to follow most of the time, but they're, by his standards, mentally odd. Indeed. Well, that, I think, is a very very good note to finish, uh, David. It's been absolutely fascinating talking to you about Churchill and his uh, financial dealings, which... uh, perhaps shouldn't be set up as an example to the majority of us who don't have those strange personality traits and don't like to take a huge amount of risk. Um, So that's been a conversation with David Locke, who is the author of No More Champagne, Churchill and His Money. It's available in hardback and paperback. And uh, I have to say it's a fascinating book and uh, one which I hope that many of you will uh, go on to have a look at if you've been intrigued by what uh, David's had to say today. So thank you very much for your time, David. Thank you, Jonathan. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.